Israel would be in trouble if we took this stance. With who? How? Who? In trouble with who? Are they in trouble right now? How on earth would a sane person expect the government of Israel and the state of Israel to guarantee any sort of rights for Palestinian people? Mm, Tom, my guy, Salam, back in Dallas. I know. Good to see you. You too, man. Uh, I, I usually would do an introduction, but no introduction needed. Mm, Tom, uh, Facini, one of uh, one of the greats out there in, in intellectual thought, oh, no, Great at anything. <laughs> so I actually wanted to kick it off right off the bat and show you this video that I think is very interesting and I would love to hear your commentary on. I think we were at 1344. Yes. The biggest difference between the situation here and the situation in South Africa in the time of the apartheid is that um, the black South Africans did not deny the existence of South Africa and did not call for the destruction of South Africa. They had a very simple uh, um, goal. They had a, a very simple demand. Uh, um, we want to be equal citizens of this country. That's it. And the apartheid regime was, no, you can't be equal citizens. Now, in Israel, in, in Israel, Palestine, it's different. The Palestinians, many of them don't recognize the existence of Israel, don't, are not willing to, to recognize it, and they don't demand to be citizens of Israel. They demand, um, some of them, to destroy it and replace it with a Palestinian state. Some of them demand a separate state. But, uh, you know, if the Palestinians would adopt the same policy as the black South Africans, if you have the Palestinians coming and saying, okay, forget about it. We don't want to destroy Israel. We don't know a Palestinian country. We have a very simple request, very simple demand. Give us our full rights. We also want to vote to the Knesset. We also want to get the full protection of the law. That's it. That's our only demand. Israel will be in deep, deep trouble at that moment. Uh, but we are not... Uh, I, this is something I've been tr trying to be able to express, and I said it to Nahed Awad. The, he's a Palestinian-American, grew up in a refugee camp, and now the leader of CARE. Mm -hmm. uh, I, said, I said this very same thing, almost, where what if we took a strategic approach of peace? Uh, and, and now, ironically, that South Africa is, is in court with uh, Israel. Mm -hmm. What if South Africa proposed the, the South African solution? of uh, one nation, Palestinian and Israel? I mean, the thing is, and the thing that that sort of perspective that was showed on the video ignores, is that the peace process has already been a thing and it's already been tried. And uh, what the Palestinians have learned the hard way is that the peace process was always a euphemism. It was always a cover for the dispossession of Palestinian land and territory and the expulsion of Palestinians, right? Is that... South African as a nation was not committed to the expulsion of Africans in the same way that Israel is committed to the expulsion and dispossession of, because it's not just ghettoization, right? It's not just apartheid, right? That's one dimension of the reality of living in Palestine or occupied Palestine, right? But literally, as we've seen now, we've had documents now, uh, you know, unclassified, where this entire thing was a, a very, very clear attempt to ethnically cleanse Gaza, to push its inhabitants out, to annex it, right? I think it was, what, 2018, they had the, the, the march, right? The peaceful march to the wall. And then what was Israel's response? It was to shoot kneecaps, right? It was to snipers, 
right? So if you look at the history of the, you know, of, of the Palestinian occupation, the only time when territory has been gained or when any progress has been made, unfortunately, is with armed struggle, with armed resistance. So Israel has taught the Palestinians what works and what doesn't work. And now it wants to complain and police them as to how they should be going about their rights. It's a whole, it's a whole misdirection to try to act like, oh, it's, it's deflecting blame to the Palestinians that they're not pursuing their rights in the right way. If they would just behave, then we would give them their rights. Israel has demonstrated time and time and time again that that is false, that they're lying from their constitution, from the way that the state is constructed to the, you know, the different roads. And that's why you have South Africans, okay, if he wants to go with the example of South Africa, you have South Africans themselves saying that Israel is worse than an apartheid. It's not just an apartheid. It's worse than an apartheid. Apartheid is only one dimension of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. So why could you, how would you blame different Palestinians group? different Palestinian groups for wanting the, you know, Israel as a nation state to be dissolved. Now that's conflated because now the Zionists are going to say, oh my God, you want to kill Jews. That's not true. No. What we're saying is that the nation state of Israel is so rotten to the core, it was imposed by European powers, including America, onto this soil. It was constructed from the beginning as a racist state, as an ethno-supremacist state. It has to go right? What you replace it with, that's an open conversation for the people in the area to figure out on their own. That's not my place. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a deflection of blame. And this is something that Zionists have done time and time again to push it like, oh, if only they would, uh, if only they would not bleed on my, on my shoes, basically. Mm. If only they would not scream so loud. If only they would, you know, approach things. The Palestinians have tried everything. They've tried everything. And Israel has taught them time and time again that the Abraham Accords, Camp David Accords, all these things, every time they tried the peaceful route, more land grabs, more settlements, more, you know, everything. So at this point, you know, Israel's got no one to blame but themselves. Don't you think, though, on the political stage, and uh, as John Mearsheimer, one of the one of the political strategic thinkers, one of the great ones in, in the Western world, at least in my opinion, uh, he said one of the two factors of power in the world are is uh, is uh, politics and economy. Mm. Uh, in the political atmosphere, couldn't we strategize as a Palestinian movement uh, in which we we say all Palestinians, because now we have the global stage in a way we haven't had before, mm -hmm. and now we could really set our sights on one state solution. Mm -hmm. And like he said, we just want equal rights. Don't you think that that's actually an aggressive strategy? People may misunderstand what I'm saying as a peaceful, like, guys, let's just quit kind of thing. But actually, I think this is an aggressive strategy. It takes, though, as an assumption, the goodwill of the Israeli government and the actors in the Israeli government to honor that request or the ability to coerce them or force them to the table to acknowledge that request. And if you gather, like South Africa has done in its court case, if you gather all the statements of the people in the Israeli government and the Israeli military, and look at what their intentions are for the people of Palestine and for the people of Gaza, then it makes it abundantly clear that they have no other intent but either expulsion or genocide, right? So how do you possibly appeal to, appeal to that type of actor or that type of government? Let's just limit it to the government. How do you appeal to that type of government to give us our equal rights? What rights? 
right? This is, you know, I don't want to get too theoretical here, but in the in the the era that we live in, in the nation state era, right? When the nations, every single government is a nation state. Okay, rights are only interpreted and guaranteed by the nation. They're not interpreted and guaranteed by anything other than that, right? So the UN doesn't get to define what your rights are. They can pass whatever, however many you know, declarations they want, but at the end of the day, every individual nation is the one. Even the UN relies upon the individual nation states to deliver rights within its own territory, right? It, it's not going to come and, and force somebody or take somebody over or institute a regime change. The United States does that, right? So, so that that means so it depends upon the state to decide what rights you're entitled to and then to guarantee them or secure them. So with the state constituted as it is now, how on earth would a sane person expect the government of Israel and the state of Israel to guarantee any sort of rights for Palestinian people? Because I think we should listen to our enemies, and maybe Yuval's our enemy, maybe not, but that Israel would be in trouble if we took this stance. With who? How, who in trouble with who? Are they in trouble right now? Because their whole reputation in America is we're the only democracy in the Middle East. We want peace. That's only a tiny we're the victims. part of their, that only, only democracy in the Middle East is only a tiny part of what they represent ideologically. Even if they were, listen, the United States, do they only care about, about supporting democracies? No. No, they don't. They support CC. They support other dictators in the world. Why? How do they justify it? National interest, right? So it's only one discourse or excuse, whatever you want to call it, of many. It's not as if, if Israel admits tomorrow, all right, guys, you know what? We were kidding. We're not really a democracy. Is American support going to just evaporate? No way. It's going to still be there, right? So you tell me, what's the mechanism to actually force the government of Israel to grant? Let's imagine your scenario works. Let's imagine one state solution, which you can imagine like a world of worlds. Like I'm not saying like it's completely impossible to imagine, but given like where we're at right now, who's going to force Israel to give Palestinians their rights in a one state solution? I think a lot of American Jews, because a lot of American Jews, the whole premise that they're deluded upon is that these Palestinians want to kill us. And they have been raised, I, I, I grew up with a lot of American Jews, they have been raised to be told yeah. or, or were told that we as Jews, people have historically wanted to kill us. Israel is our safe haven. Israel is where we need to be. And, and Palestinians just want to kick us out. What if American Jews realize, oh, wait, Palestinians just want to be um, citizens just like us? Well, first of all, how long is that going to take and how many lives is that going to take? First of all. And second of all, I mean, how much influence do American Jews have? over the state of Israel, right? Like you're, you're saying basically that the diaspora population, right? Uh, the population of American Jews are gonna be the ones to guarantee Palestinians equal rights within occupied Palestine. I don't know, I, I'm skeptical of that. What do you think is the solution then? Well, I don't know 100%, okay? And this is why, you know, like I, I'm not trying to uh, be hypercritical, but and I'm just being descriptive here. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, you know, I'm being purely descriptive when I say that Israel, as formulated as a nation state, has pursued a policy that's been pretty consistent of expulsion, dispossession, and when it can and wants to genocide. Okay. How is, how is that going to change? Like that, that's the, the million dollar question. 
if it were not a country or a nation the United States was allied with, right? We could imagine a scenario in which, you know, somebody intervened, regime change or something like this, right? Somebody pointed it out like this. Okay, when genocides happen, like, like what are the different sort of um, possibilities for how it can end? Okay, so a historian that I, that I saw, he said there's, there's three possibilities, okay? One is the American-Canadian situation, which is where the indigenous population is not entirely obliterated, but for all intents and purposes, obliterated, right? Whereas that the hegemonic colonial power just, they win, okay? And then everybody who's left, they're on reservations or wherever, and they're dispossessed from their traditional ways, and they just kind of have to find a way to survive, okay? That's scenario one. Scenario two is Truth and Reconciliation Committee, like South Africa and other places that have experienced either apartheid or genocide, where it's like, okay, we're going to try to recognize the, you know, that we're all going to stay here, but we have to find a way to, to reconcile and get over it, okay? And some nations have pursued that. And the third possibility is Algeria and France, right? The indigenous kick out the colonizers through armed struggle. You know, those are just, again, descriptive possibilities, right? So I don't really know of a, a fourth way, right, that, could, that it could end. And you could say that, okay, go ahead, yeah. So wouldn't you, wouldn't you say out of those three options, the South African is our best bet right now? Well, here's the, thing, here's the difference between the, the, the South African and the Israeli situation is that when it comes to the timeline, how long have people been in the state of Israel, you know, um, is a lot that the European sort of Jews that migrated to Israel are on a very different timeline than the Afrikaners, right, that came to, to South Africa. Like we're talking about uh, a situation that has, it's not even 100 years old, right? So the mo many of the people in Israel have dual passports, dual citizenships. They're Israeli and American. They're Israeli and UK, Israeli and this. Like they, as many people have pointed out on social media, they have a home to go back to, right? right. That's a different situation than, than South Africa, where you're now dealing with, you know, like several generations down the line and there, it doesn't really make sense. You know, it, it's, it's going on for so long that people are pretty much going to stay there. And I'm not saying that that possibility shouldn't be considered, you know, obviously, again, that's up to Palestinians. It's like, how are they going to move on? You know, but we're not even at that point, right? Because if anything, if anything, the South African situation, according to this video, proves that armed struggle is a necessary component of it because it was the Nelson Mandela that forced, you know, uh, the situation to its crisis where then eventually you get someone to the negotiation table, you know, and that's not any, you know, um, advocacy for any group or anything like that, but just, again, descriptively, how history works. How history works is that when people are acting in bad faith or regimes or governments are acting in bad faith. Something has to force them to the table. They're not going to come to the table on their own. Why would they? They have the power. They have the United States behind them, right? They've, they, today, they just announced that they don't care what the Hague says. They don't care of the ICJ rules. They're going to do whatever they're going to do, no matter what they, the interna international community, international organizations say. They literally, <laughs> literally tweeted that. I just read the tweet before, when you guys were praying, Right. How do you reason? How do you reason with those people? How do you, you know, you're going to have to have something's going to have to force them to the, the negotiation table. What it's going to be, you know, Allah knows best. None of this is even possible 
without someone to head this movement. I found this to be troubling from the very beginning, that there has been no head to the movement of the Palestinian movement. I think it's one of the, the reasons why America or the FBI uh, assassinated X or King, uh, is once you remove the head, the body doesn't know where to go. Uh, I think that's an issue right there. I don't know if the, you know, we've all, we've been preaching, including yourself, you know, the Ummah's one body, mm. but where's the head to that body? Is it Muhammad al-Qurd? Is it Omar Sayman, Sheikh Omar Sayman? Who is it? Well, I mean, those, those, we have to recognize the space that we have responsibility over. And I don't think that we should sit here in, in the U.S. and criticize the Palestinian movement in Palestine. We're right? not criticizing right. that. Or even because, you know, to be frank, like they have leaders. Okay. It's like if you listen to some of the chants and some of the speeches and some of the, they, they have leaders. Okay. It's like you can agree or disagree with them, but okay. That's the scenario on the ground. And then there's other people that used to be leaders that were sellouts, right? Mahmoud Abbas and, and, and the PA and, and, and these sorts of things are largely perceived as being instruments of the West that the West sort of cultivated and groomed. And then, you know, yeah, they have their safety, but they're really just kind of a, a security force, really, for, for Western interests. That's not our, that's above our pay grade. That's what I'm trying to say. That conversation is above our pay grade. Our, our issue, what we can control, and therefore what's the productive conversation, comes to leadership here, okay, for Palestinian advocacy in the United States. As people who are citizens of the nation who is allowing this to happen, Okay, without U.S. support, this does not happen, period. The, the, bo the bombs don't go, the guns don't go, the munitions don't go, right? The political cover is not there. Without the United States, the genocide doesn't happen. That's your country, that's my country, right? So our responsibility is to do whatever legitimate means that we can pursue here to try to stop that. Now, what's going to be or what has to be the leadership? What should the leadership for that movement look like? Well, I think that we have to be careful about having it too different from the concerns and the worldview of the Palestinians themselves, right? And that's one thing that we notice is that some, some of the, the pro-Palestinian advocacy in the West is, is very, very secular. Um, and it's a palpable difference when you go, you talk to actual Palestinians like from Palestine or in Palestine, right? Is that they're, it, it's, it's an Islamic issue. Right now, there's there's a line, and even many sort of uh, pro-Palestinian orgs here echo it, and I get what they mean when they say, "Well, it's not a religious issue." It is and it isn't. Right? It's not in the sense that this is not an issue of Muslims versus Jews. That's correct. Right? This is about Zionism. Right? There are Jews that are with us for Palestinian liberation. There are Muslims who have sold us out. There are Muslims who have sold out the Palestinians. Right. So in that sense that, that that phrase is true. But there's other ways in which that phrase is not true. Right? Is that Palestine is an Islamic issue that every properly calibrated Muslim should care about and feel about. Right? And so it does have that dimension, and that dimension can't be erased. And if you talk to Palestinians in Palestine, then that is a front and center aspect of the struggle for Palestinian liberation, right? Al-Quds, how come people are getting pulled out of the rubble in Gaza? And the first thing on their lips is Al-Quds, right? Like without a, you know, uh, uh, an Islamic frame of reference, then that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, right? So the leadership here, um, it, it can't be so secular and so worldly that 
it completely erases that dimension, right? And you talk about, and this, we've grown a lot when it comes to the pro-Palestinian advocacy here, where you go from a place where now, you know, there were organizations that were doing rallies and demonstrations and Islam was very sort of sidelined. People would be afraid of takbir or they'd be afraid of the, of la ilaha illallah. They'd be afraid that there wouldn't be any um, plan for prayer, right? If you're going to have a protest and it's going, you know, Asr time, you need to pray. People just like bootleg prayers on the side or stuff like that. Now it's more front and center. Now people are realizing that, you know, the Islamicization of the issue is an important dimension to it, right? Allies are welcome. Come, come on board. Like you can help, definitely. But don't, don't erase the Islamic dimension to it because that would be also something that uh, is, is problematic and an, an outside imposition. Uh, I wouldn't look at my previous... Uh my previous question, I, I, I would not clarify, or I should clarify it as mm. I'm not criticizing how the Palestinians are going about their movement. Sure. If anything, I want to give, you know, my advice mm -hmm. as someone who cares deeply about the issue. Mm -hmm. What's your advice for any people in Gaza right now that would be listening to us? What's your advice as to how to pick a leader from within them to rise and centralize power around? Yeah, I wouldn't deign to do that. And that's not a criticism for you. This is just like about thinking about the audience and how they might hear they might hear sort of how we might respond to this. Um, if on if if anything, we've been learning from the people of Gaza, you know, they haven't necessarily been been learning from us during this. You know, other than hopefully and and there have been, you know, individual communications to this effect that they have taken heart in the support that people have shown across the world. Uh, but when it comes to their faith and their resiliency, you look at the likes of Khalid Nabhan and uh, Wa'al, right, uh, and, and Mu'taz, and all the sort of heroes that have emerged, right, leaders, leaders that have emerged from everything that's been going on, you know, we should be taking notes from them, you know, um, I don't have any advice to give. I think that but each one of them keeps saying something similar as you. Everyone's like, no, I'm going to stay in my lane. This is above my pay grade. Yeah. Everyone is keeps on pushing the responsibility away from themselves because they don't deem themselves fit or worthy enough for it. Mm. But someone has to do it. Well, here's, I guess, my, my thing is that when, again, like I'm, I'm trying to keep us focused on what we can do here. Okay. Because let's say, for example, let's say that I give ad ad advice. <laughs> give advice to the people of Gaza, the people of Palestine for how they should pick a leader, which I wouldn't deign to do. I don't think that's appropriate for me. What are they supposed to do with that? You know what I mean? Like, like, and how does that relate to what I can do here? Does that serve? But their why do we belittle strategy so much? Oh, it's not belittling strategy. It's bel al It's about being strategic. Being strategic is knowing what you have the capacity to do, and what is the right thing to do given your capacity. Right? Like, so let's take the abandoned Biden campaign. Campaign. Right? Like, so. Just as an illustration, right? The abandoned Biden campaign is premised on the idea that, okay, as Muslims, we don't have the numbers to choose the president, like to actually put somebody in power, but we do have the numbers to remove somebody from power. We can make someone lose an election, but we can't make someone win an election yet, right? So given that capacity, th this is now our strategy, right? So that's all I'm saying is that like, you know, I've learned more from the people of Gaza over the last three months right, then I think that they, they stand to be able to learn from me. You know what I mean? Now, when it comes to what our part of the movement, because we can consider ourselves part of, of, of the movement for, you know, liberation of Palestine, right? 
are part of the movement here in the West, in the United States, you know, I have lots of ideas about strategy when it comes to that. I don't think, and this is why it brings us back to the relevance of that video, I don't think that there's anything that the Palestinians can do in Palestine other than what they've already tried that's going to have a radical different result. You know what I mean? Right? They've tried the peace route. They've tried resistance. They've tried, you know, all different types of of honestly, it falls on our feet at this point. Like I said, like like it doesn't happen without the United States. Right? And so it seems more strategic to me to think about what do we have to do? What does our movement have to look like? What's the strategic action for us? Who's the right person to lead it? Okay, here. Yeah, 100%, right? Um, and what is it? How do we reverse engineer it where we get to a, a situation where the United States stops politically green lighting and supplying and arming Israel entirely, right? And this genocide specifically. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the abandoned Biden campaign yeah. uh, for the 2024 election? Should Muslims be voting for <clears throat> Trump or Biden? Uh, well, they shouldn't be voting for Biden. And that's that, that's a, a very important corrective that I'm that I'm giving to the way you framed it, because it's not just Trump or Biden. It's really, are we going to teach the Democratic Party and Joe Biden in, in particular, are we going to teach them that you can murder 30,000 of our brothers and sisters in cold blood and get away with it or not. Is that a red line for us or not? That's basically what's at stake in November. And we would be cowards, to be frank. We would be cowards if we basically say, no, that's not a red line. I'll vote for you because I'm afraid of Trump or I'll vote for you because I'm afraid of Haley or DeSantis or anybody else. This is just a principled decision that has to be taken, right? Um, now the people who have crunched the numbers, the data analysts and the political scientists and things like that have crunched the numbers and said that there's enough of a potential Muslim vote in the swing states, right? The Pennsylvania and Michigan and Minnesota and, and other places, there's enough of a Muslim voting population to swing the election. And again, swinging an election doesn't mean that we get to choose who wins it, but it does mean that we can make someone lose it. And the idea is by delivering a loss to Biden, that we will have achieved two major things, okay? First of all, we will have built a collective will to act collectively and vote as a bloc as Muslims, which right now the Democratic Party does, is banking on us not being able to do. The reason why Biden is bombing Yemen right now and defending the genocide is that he is banking on us not being able to get our act together and organize and vote as a block. Okay? So if we're able to deliver a loss to Biden, we prove to every politician in the United States, we can take you out of power. We can remove you from office if you cross us. And this has been done at the local level. We're talking with many, many of the brothers, you know, some from uh, Staten Island and other, pe other people who have already done this at the local level, right? Where they helped get somebody in and then that person crossed the line, either with Zionism or something else, and they took him right out, right? If you do that, you send a message to everybody. Now everybody's calculus changes. Whoever gets involved, gets elected next, whether it's Trump or DeSantis, or, or even if, in a long shot, if the Democratic Party changes for the primaries and, and dumps Biden and goes for somebody else. Everybody now knows 
that, hey, there's some stuff that you can't do to the Muslim community, that if you cross this line, you're going to be one term. Hmm. That has to happen. We have to, to, to organize so that we have that power and that we can deploy that power. And if we can deploy that power once in November against Biden, that means we can deploy it again and again and again after that. Right. So that's the, the strategy. And you know, that's why the, the question is not who's going to win or who to vote for. The, the question is, or I guess the imperative is, just don't vote for Biden. Hmm. You've said that power is not the corrupter of our world today, but instead a moral failing is. Mm -hmm. What moral failures have Muslims committed that may have led to where we are today? Okay. And this, this is why the conversation has to be about us here in the United States. Like, because again, we're not, we, we're not going to sit here and pass judgment on, on Palestinians in Palestine for anything that they've done. We've failed them. We've failed them, to be frank. How have we failed them? We failed them because we love the dunya too much. And that's our moral failing, principally, right? And the Prophet told us. He says there's going to come a day where you're content with zara and you're following the tales of cattle, etc., etc., and you abandon things. And what's the punishment? Allah will cause people to come and rule over you. and You'll be humiliated, right? We have right here, we're in Dallas. We've got our big masajid. We've got our big chandeliers. We've got our comfortable lives. We've got our suburban whatever. You know, my daughter, my son's a lawyer, doctor, engineer. Alhamdulillah, look at that. We're the top 1% of the world right? When it comes to wealth, that's comfort. And that's obviously not all of us. You know, the American community is diverse. You know, we've got inner city, we've got other like communities. We're not neglecting that, but let's look at, let's look at if there's a moral failing here. We got too comfortable. We got too comfortable and it, we got lulled into a stupor or a sleep so that Look at all of the organization and lobbying and, and money and, and capacity that the Zionist movement has been able to generate. And what have we done? We're asleep at the wheel, right? That created the conditions in which this genocide could happen. If after 9-11 or before 9-11 or whatever, if the Muslim community was like, you know what? We're going to try to build political power, grassroots, ground up, you know, like the, the proper way that it should have been done. So that 20 years later, this sort of thing couldn't happen, right? That would have been amazing. It didn't happen. So now we have the next 20 years. Okay, let's, let's, let's learn from the past. And I think that we are actually, because there's a difference now compared to after 9-11, where we have to learn and be like, this can never happen again. Never happen again to our Muslim brothers and sisters, especially the Palestinians, but all of our Muslim brothers and sisters that the Muslims living in the United States have a specific responsibility. They're more responsible than any other Muslim in the world because the United States is the largest supplier of weapons and arms in the world and because it basically calls the shots on the foreign policy scene and the international arena that we have to figure out how to build the political power to stop these things from happening, right? And the moral failing that has prevented us from doing that is is loving the world too much and getting getting too comfortable with it. Yeah. And what would you say, when I had on Omar Nassimi, he said, let me ask you the question first, which is what can Muslims do? And I like that you said within 20 years, because it's long term. 
Uh, it has to be. What do American Muslims have to do for the next 20, 30, 50 years uh, to ensure that this never happens again? There's a million things that we could be doing. There's so much. Actually, it's, it's staggering how much there is to do. Do you have a top three? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give some ideas that I've been thinking about. And I've spent a lot of time this weekend with Mubin. You know, he, he was with me at the at the Amal uh, sort of conference and stuff like that. So we've been talking a lot. Um, you know, our mistake, one of our mistakes, or one of a part of our political naivety is that we think that this is just like a comic book. Like there's heroes and villains. And we just are waiting for our hero and we can just cheer them on and then they'll go take care of everything. That's not the way it works, right? Political power is built long-term, slowly, ground up, block by block. You can't build the roof before you build the foundation, right? So it's not going to do us anything to throw somebody up to the level of Congress, for example, okay? You know how these campaigns get funded. If you're at the level of Congress and you're a Muslim, you're not accountable to the Muslims. You're accountable to the DNC. The DNC did your fundraising for you. The Muslims didn't do their fundraising for you, right? So then when it comes to these sorts of issues, who are they going to choose? They're not going to bite the hand that feeds them, ever, right? So we're, we're a long way away. But we can start locally, right? Listen, there's some environmental organizations that I donate to or I'm a part of or a member of, right? Every year, I get a report card about the local representatives, the elected officials, and how they voted on environmental issues. A whole thing. They're not telling me who to vote for, but you know who to vote for. Because, <laughs> and like the, the, the guys who are really anti-environment, like red, you know, red text and stuff like that. And it's like, that's easy stuff that we can be doing, right? Like voter education, voter turnout, right? I, I criticize, and I've said this, and I'll say this on every platform I get a chance to, the idea of the lesser of two evils. Lesser of two evils is useless if you don't have a long-term strategy. You can't tell me it's election year, we're going to pick the lesser of two evils, and then you do nothing for four years, and then you have to pick the lesser of two evils again? What's to say they're not going to be more evil than the two that you picked from four years ago, right? Let's say you're in a situation where you have to, you, you exercise your judgment. You say, okay, well, you know, neither of these two are perfect, but I'm going to go lesser of two evils, whatever I deem that to be. The very next day after the election, you got to start working to make sure that the next election, the two people that you have to choose from are observably better than the two that you chose from before. We're not doing that work right now, right? So when it comes to grooming uh, potential, you know, people to run. A lot of people just need to be told to run. It's like, hey, look, this person, they're either from our community or they have the right priorities or the right values, right? Not just token, you know, identity stuff, that they have the right values, whether it's a school board, whether it's a city council, you know, whether, you know, start small and be like, hey, we're going to fund your campaign. We can contribute this much or we'll fundraise for you. We'll take care of flyers, phone banking, emails, you know, voter education, whatever, if you run. Okay, it's from the Sunnah to not seek power. Okay, so we should be going out finding the people and then telling them, hey, it's like you're the guy. You're gonna like for this position, it's like you know, let's we're gonna put behind you. No, I don't really want to. I never really thought about. It. No, 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 you're gonna be the guy, right? And some people have done this on the local level, and it works, right? So this is the sort of stuff, just like a drop in the bucket that we have to start doing. Like if you're able to start making a difference on city councils, okay, and school boards. Look at, no, before LGBTQ curriculum, 
Who was paying attention to school boards? Nobody. So everybody who was already there hand, with their hand on the wheel, now all of a sudden look at the power that they have, right? That's our own dropped opportunity. We could have been putting people in school boards so that this wasn't ever even an issue, but we didn't. And so we got burnt. We're always like reacting and on the back heel. So this is what it's going to take. It's going to take, you know, like actually a systematic, we're going to have people, they don't always have to be Muslim. We can't get tricked by identity politics. There are plenty of sellouts in the Muslim community, but people who are vetted, people who have our values or share our values, that we're going to go through the march, the long march. We're going to go district by district, you know, county level, city level, whatever, school, etc. And we're going to start building a, a groundswell movement, right? A, a grassroots movement of political power. Economic power. Do we have to go, Mohamed? We have to go. All right. Economic um, power is part of that. Where you spend your money, okay? Stop I don't care if Walmart's on the BDS list or not. Stop buying at Walmart. Go buy from your Muslim brother or sister. Keep the money in the community. Malcolm X wrote a lot about this, right? We like to all, you know, celebrate him, you know, et cetera, but we don't follow what he said to do, okay? Keep your money within the local mom and pop shops that are run by the aunties and the uncles, right? Have a hub of, you know, uh, where, you know, somebody said it like this. We need Muslims doing everything. We need Muslims making shoes, making clothing. We need Muslims, you know, in, in food production. We need Muslims in uh, media. Media. Oh my God! Like, like you know, uh, coming with. Uh, well, can I ask you this, yeah, sure. uh, Mohammed? How, how much time, by the way? I have two more questions. All right. Okay. Okay. Right. So I got two more questions. You could take your however much time you. I'll want. be short. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what do you think of an American Muslim uh, American Muslim lobby to rival APAC? I think that yeah, I mean, okay, so lobby is one thing, but then there's political action committees and super PACs, which is another thing, which is similar. Okay, I definitely think that Muslims should be getting into political action committees and super PACs. Lobbying, you know, there's going to be some lobbying. That's that's not that's not a problem. But we don't have to just be like APAC, because here's why, okay? Zionism is built on lies, and Islam is built on the truth, right? So Zionism re requires targeted pressure and essentially bribery <laughs> applied to the powerful individuals, the right levers to pull in order for it to work. Maybe even a little bit of blackmail too, yeah, huh? Black, well, yeah, Epstein's list, right? Epstein. Exactly. In order for it to work, we have the truth on our side. Okay, we don't have to resort to the same sorts of tactics, which is why I believe that Islamic advocacy would be much more grassroots than than APAC lobby, right? It's like, but yes, that level of savvy and organization take the things that work and make sense and, and agree with our ethics and leave the things that don't, right? Obviously, we're not going to blackmail anybody, <laughs> right? But you know, when it when it comes to that level of coordination, right? Power is coordinated action. Yes, when it comes to being able to mobilize quickly uh, to flood inboxes and voicemail boxes and stuff like that quickly. Yes, 100%. Like we need to develop that that capacity, but it should be easier for us because we have the truth on our side. We shouldn't we're not going to have to raise the same amount of money. We're not going to have to bribe or result, res, resort to the same dirty tricks that they do because we have the truth on our side and that will make people more sympathetic. Hmm. As a person with a white American background, what can you give us a a quick brief analysis as to what's going on here why do white americans support israel like this or at least are complicit it's a complicated question that we don't have really time to really go into because and i've talked about this on twitter um 
we need to understand what what is whiteness, you know, as a, as an ideological construct, okay? Because it's not simply just the color of your skin. It, it's it's an invented category that has real tangible effects and consequences. Obviously, we're not saying it's imaginary, but um, you know, to imagine that there's such a thing as the white community, right, is something like a, a social construct, right? Um, just like there is no such thing as you know. Uh, other communities they're not they're not a monolith okay mm-hmm. however yeah. however okay. there is hegemonic whiteness right and there is white supremacy right uh and there are people who to various degrees are invested in that or not okay so there are people who are very invested in in white supremacy and their sense of whiteness and being white okay so for them i mean it's a very sort of clear case issue of you know the difference between how they treat Ukrainian refugees versus <laughs> versus Palestinian refugees, where they've you know been on you know the newscasts are saying it's so shocking because they look just like us, right? Like mask off moment, like like you know like that that's sort of when you're talking about whiteness and white supremacy and internalized white supremacy and investment in whiteness, like like that's what you're talking about, right? But that's not the only thing going on, right? Like there's also religious dimensions, right? There's also um, you know uh, there's several dimensions to it. Right, so it's a huge topic, but <laughs> I don't have a, a, a quick answer for, for you. Sure, for sure. I wish we could have had time to speak about Epstein, uh, something I'm really into right now. But even Tom, thank you so much Maybe. for coming on the podcast, uh, man. Always Once a again, pleasure. always a pleasure, man. All bless All you. Right. Thank you guys for joining the Unsolved Podcast.